Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big yeah. book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm here in County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-host today um, is Dotty S. and our Q&A is Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting or any concerns, you can contact either myself or any of the co-hosts. And you can do this by private message in the chat function. While we disable the chat, it's open that you can you can email or you can message the host. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study today. However, the question and answer section which follows that will not be recorded. So please do feel free to ask Harlan any questions that you might have during that time. We ask that if you please keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And if you need to step away from the camera for any reason at all, please do disconnect your camera while you're doing that, just so it's not distracting to everybody else. We also ask if you need to eat um, or you're driving, also please do disconnect your camera. We'll post a link to the previous week's recordings and the seventh tradition in the chat function and we'll continue to do this throughout the meeting. Um, also, we will open the chat function again about 10 minutes before Q&A. So if you want to post a question there, if you don't, if you want to answer, ask a question anonymously, do post it in the chat or send it directly to Sue and Sue will be able to ask Harlan your question. So now we're going to go to Scottsdale in Arizona and we're going to say good morning mm -hmm. to you, Harlan. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Maria. I hope you're well. And just so you guys can eat your hearts out, it's going to be in the low 70s here today. Uh, it's going to be absolutely beautiful. The sun is out and it, this we say to each other, this is why we live here. Uh, before I say one word about the chapter, we're going to open with the doctor's opinion this morning. I do want to take this moment to wish each and every one of you the happiest, the healthiest, the most bountiful and the most recovered new year of your life. I hope that this will be a year of wonderment and I hope that it will be a year of miracles and abundance in your lives and in the lives of the people that you love most. And I hope that you will, um, you will always remember uh, that, uh, that, that life is so precious. So I, I hope that each and every one of you will have a wonderful, healthy year for the, for 2024. Um, I also want to take this time to again remind you that the birthday is coming up. We have about a thousand people coming. It is going to be wonderful. We're hoping that you can join us. If you have not made your arrangements yet, there is still time to do that. The price is going to go up $10 next week. But you can do that on oabirthday.com. This is going to be a wonderful convention. There is uh, going to be uh, wonderful speakers, wonderful sessions. We're going to have some meet and greets for sponsors and sponsees. We're going to have some vision time to meet and greet people from vision so you can attach faces to the voices that you've been hearing on a vision for you for a long time and of course our scottsdale group will have some meet and greet time on the second floor there by the registration desk so i'm hoping to see you in la it's just two weeks from now not even two weeks from now about two weeks and we're going to have a great time for those of you who are unable to attend we're going to have a 
couple of really good speakers on this meeting while the birthday is going on in my stead. We're going to have two marvelous speakers that are going to wow you. So don't don't forget to tune in. If you are not at the birthday, uh, you're not going to want to uh, avoid this group. Okay. Um, for thousands of years, going all the way back to King Solomon of Israel, 5,000 years ago, people have looked up at the sky and wondered, what is alcoholism? Why my child? Why my father? Why my mother? Why my relative, my spouse? Why alcoholism? What is this alcoholism? King Solomon, 5,000 years ago, in the book of Solomon, wrote that he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it. Notice I didn't use the word cure. I used the word remedy because there is no cure for addiction. There's no cure for anything here. We have a way out on which we can agree and it works, but there's no cure. In the 1640s in England, there was a doctor and in the 1640s, this Dr. Trotter, Dr. Trotter, he surmised that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it. In 1790, the first Surgeon General of the United States of America was a man whose name was Benjamin Rush. And if you ever come to the city that I was born and raised in, Chicago, Illinois, you will find a street called Rush Street, very touristy, a lot of high-end bars, a lot of high-end restaurants. Uh, and Rush Street was so named for Benjamin Rush. There is also a hospital in Chicago called Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's. And Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's was named after the first Surgeon General of the United States, whose name, as I said, was Benjamin Rush. So we have some namesakes for Rush in Chicago, although he never set foot in Chicago in his life. But the bottom line is, is that Benjamin Rush in 1790, after treating John Adams's son, John Adams's first son was John Quincy Adams. Yes, it's called Quincy, not Quincy. Even though it looks like Quincy, it's called Quincy Adams. He became the sixth president of the United States and his father was the second president of the United States. One of two families that had a father and son president kind of deal going there. The others were the Bushes. But the bottom line is, uh, John Quincy Adams's next in line was a boy by the name of Charles Adams. And Charles Adams was a hopeless alcoholic 
who died at a young age, leaving a wife and young children. He died of alcoholism and his name was Charles. And after treating Charles Adams and other alcoholics, Benjamin Rush came to the same conclusion that we're going to be talking about in a minute here, that alcoholism was a disease, but of course he couldn't prove that and he had no cure. He had no remedy for it. There is no cure. He had no remedy for the disease. In the 1920s in New York, there was a neurologist not concerned with alcoholics, not concerned with alcoholism, not concerned at any level with anything that had to do with addiction. And he was a little over-invested in the stock market. And his name was William Duncan Silkworth. He was a neurologist, the study of the nervous system. And he, when uh, Black Tuesday came, Black Tuesday was October 29th, 1929, when the Great Depression started. Just to put into historical perspective for you. Now, I know this isn't a civics class or a political science class, but just to put in perspective for you, when this occurred, unemployment among whites was about 50 to 60 percent. Unemployment among blacks was about 90 to 100 percent. Unemployment among Hispanics, Native Americans, and other minorities was about 90 to 100 percent. When America catches cold, like poor Cindy has up in Michigan, but when America catches cold, Europe gets pneumonia. So during this period of time in the world we have, the economic conditions were horrible. But William Duncan Silkworth had a friend named Charles Towns. And Charles Towns operated and owned the most prestigious drying out joint, the most prestigious hospital treating alcoholics and drug addicts in the world. And it was located in New York City at 293 Central Park West. He started it in 1901. And in 1929, in November, he hired a brand new director of medical, uh, director of medicine. He hired a new director. He hired his friend, William Duncan Silkworth. And between November of 1929 and late 1934, a period spanning five years, William Duncan Silkworth treated thousands and thousands of people. Some were alcoholics and some were not. Now, you may ask the question, why would a non-alcoholic go to Towns Hospital? There are people that get in trouble with alcohol, and there are people who get in trouble with drugs or food, 
And with a warning, they can stop on a dime. I have friends, and maybe you do too. When they were in college, they did drugs. They drank like fish. They got out of college. They met the right girl, or they already knew the right girl, but they decided to settle down and have a family. And the drugs and the liquor came to a stop. Came to a stop. They never thought about it again. That's not me. That's not me when it comes to food. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. But I that is not me by any stretch of anyone's imagination. When it comes to food, I have been addicted from the minute I was born. From the minute I was born. And through sheer observation... William Duncan Silkworth came to some conclusions. And the conclusions that he came to were, yes, he agreed with Trotter, Solomon, and Rush, that alcoholism was a disease. Now, let's take a look at that word disease. I hear thousands of people over the years who have come into this these rooms, now I say these rooms because that's the jargon that I learned years ago, because when I came in, you, there was no Zoom, there was no uh, computers like that. There, we didn't have that. You came literally into a church basement or a hospital or an office building, and we had a meeting. We had meetings there. And... Um, <clears throat> So when we say you came into the rooms, our perception, because I know some of you have never actually been to a live meeting. I, I get that. And that's, uh, as an aside, that's why some of our donations have fallen off a cliff, because you guys, some of you have never been in a room where a basket was passed for seventh tradition. Seventh tradition is we are fully self-supporting through our own contributions. So I would advise you to understand that unless you give, it's very bad because the Zoom is not free and we need money for uh, world and region and inner groups, things like that. So give when you can, if you can, if you can't, that's okay. I don't want to get too far on a tangent here with the seventh tradition. But when I say in the rooms, some of you are looking like, what room are you talking about? I'm in my bedroom or I'm in my office of my house. What room are you talking about? The kitchen? No. But anyway, the bottom line is we have that expression in the rooms. But anyway, so William Duncan Silkworth, through sheer observation, came in and came to this conclusion that it is a disease. And I do know that for many people, they struggle with this concept of disease. And the reasons that we struggle is because if you are a compulsive overeater who was morbidly obese like me, you are told by doctors and teachers and adults and children and books and movies and literature, you are told by everyone in creation that all you need to do is muster your willpower. You've got to put, I've had doctors tell me the only thing that you need to do is pull, push yourself away from the table, go out and play. 
push yourself away from the table, eat half. You can eat anything you want, just eat in moderation. I've had doctors tell me that. They say, instead of eating uh, a piece of cake, eat a half a piece of cake and then go exercise. I've had doctors tell me that. But what Dr. Silkworth gleaned from his observation, what he, what he drew from his observation is this, that there is something in the alcoholic that sets him or her apart from the normal temperate drinker. He describes it as the heavy, the moderate drinker, someone who gets in trouble a little bit. Maybe they got a DUI. Maybe they had a fight with their wife because they were drinking at a party. You know, is tomorrow night is New Year's Eve? Yeah, tomorrow night is New Year's Eve. And um, tomorrow night, there's going to be people that are probably going to get uh, DWIs, GUIs. See, in Illinois, we didn't have DUI. We had DWI, driving while intoxicated. So I, this DUI was a new one on me. I moved out to Oregon a number of years ago, and they had DUI. I never heard of that. We In Illinois, we have DWI. But anyway, it's the same thing. So anyway, they're going to get in trouble with liquor and maybe they'll go to a hospital or something or they'll, you know, whatever, they'll seek help and they'll never drink again. And then there's the heavy drinker, the heavy user. You know, I have a friend, he lives in Chicago and he and I could go to a buffet and he would stay right there with me the whole time. The whole time he would be eating stride for stride with me. Now today is Saturday. He wouldn't think about eating again until Monday or Tuesday. He wouldn't touch a drop of food the rest of today. He wouldn't touch a drop of food tomorrow. By Monday or Tuesday, he might have a light breakfast. And then by Tuesday or Wednesday, he'll be eating his normal meals. I will be eating on the way home from the buffet because I will stop at the convenience store and get crap to eat because I've triggered the physical allergy. But Dr. Silkworth, through his observation, understood that there was about 10% of these guys because at Towns Hospital, these guys would come in and they'd get fixed up. And they'd leave and they'd never come back. But about 10% of these guys would come out and go in and go out and go in and go out. It was like a revolving door. And he noticed something different about these guys, primarily men, but not all. Primarily men, but not all. And he noticed that there was something about them that was different. And the first thing he noticed was that there was something about these guys that once liquor was inside them, it was impossible for them to stop. And they couldn't stay stopped because something in their mind needed that fix. And when I was young, or at any time in my life up to the time I got into good recovery, I looked at the world through a fence and I saw people laughing and holding hands and walking. And it didn't matter what I thought they were feeling or what they was going on in their life. And I'm sure many of them were going through their own hell. 
I saw them as happy-go-lucky people that had luck and fortune thrust upon them, and I didn't have it. I felt less than. I felt apart from. I didn't feel a part of. I was scared all the time. I'm not always sure what I was scared of, but I do know that I was scared and I was hurting. And one thing could make me feel just right. An Almond Joy bar, an M&M, a Kit Kat bar, a piece of pizza, something. And when I had that Almond Joy bar in my mouth, Something happened in my brain that made everything okay. My morbidly obese body suddenly transformed and I looked just like James Bond. Or I looked just like I could be a superstar in the world. And I was together and I was complete. And I wasn't inadequate in any way at all. Now, the only part of that that's so sad is that that wasn't real. The other sad part is, is that that effect that I got in my brain only lasted about nine seconds. And once this 10th second clicked off, I was fat again, like Cinderella at midnight. I was back to who I was, inadequate and scared and apart from and unlovable and unacceptable. Because from the time I was a young child, the world told me that existentially I was unacceptable because of my weight. Now I went to Tops and I went to Weight Watchers and I did very well, but it didn't last. But there was something else that was, was different about me. And Dr. Silkworth nailed it right perfectly. Not only did he nail what was going on in my mind, but as we're going to find out, he also observed, understood, and transmitted that there was something different physically about me too. That once I ate that piece of Almond Joy bar, I could not stop because of a physical allergy. And that word allergy, like the word disease, bothered me for a long time because people would say to me, I came in in February of 1979. I was 24 years old. I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and two, three hundred pounds fatter than anybody in that room. And that there was something different about me physically, not just mentally, but physically too. And that once that pizza, <clears throat> once those candy bars were inside of me, they tripped a switch inside of me that set me up with a craving beyond my mental control. I was beyond human aid. 
and he observed this. And Yale University proved in their alcoholic studies program during the 50s and 60s that Dr. Silkworth was 100% correct. Let's go to page XXV in the fourth edition of the big book, XXV. Now, we're going to read a paragraph and then we're going to read as much of a letter as we can read. So let's begin with the doctor's opinion. Now, I want to toot Silkworth's horn just a little bit. If it was not for Dr. Silkworth, and I'm not, I'm not diminishing Bill Wilson. I'm not diminishing Fitz Mayo. Jimmy Burwell, Hank Parkhurst, Ebby Thatcher, Dr. Jung, Roland Hazard. I'm not diminishing any of these people. But if it were not for Silkworth, there is no book, there is no program, because none of it would make any sense at all whatsoever. None of it would make one lick of sense. Because without Silkworth, there's no explanation of the problem. Silkworth, as much as anybody, is a founder of, o, of AA. Without him, there is no program. You take this chapter out of the book, the book makes no sense. You take this idea out of the program and the program makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. If I don't know the problem, I can't I can't really cerebralize the material. I just can't do it. I'm I'm not able to do that. So as much as Silkworth is not recognized as a co-founder of AA, if you believe what I'm telling you, without him there is no program, none. Let's go to page XXV. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. This is very important. We of Alcoholics Anonymous, not you or I, but us together, us together. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our member and have witnessed our return to health. He has witnessed many people returning to health. A well-known doctor, this is Bill writing this, this paragraph, not Silkworth. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Now, before we read the letter, the doctor is Dr. Silkworth. And before we read the letter, I want to let you in on something your friends might not know, but I'm going to tell you. This letter was never intended to be part of a book. 
This letter was written on the 27th of July, 1938, and the book project just had started a year before in 37. The chapters that were already written at the time that this letter was composed were There is a Solution and More About Alcoholism. None of the rest of the book was written yet. And on the 27th of July, 1938, Dr. Silkworth wrote this letter to give to Bill Wilson as a letter of introduction. Now, when we read through the letter with that in mind, you will find that it makes more sense as a letter of introduction. And so they used it for the book, not only to introduce the credibility of Silkworth, but to introduce Bill Wilson, the author of the the primary author of the book, to us as the reader. But this was, they redacted Dr. Silkworth's name and they redacted Bill Wilson's name. The reason that they redacted William Silkworth's name was this. The American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association had not yet in 1938 accepted alcoholism as an illness. They considered it weak will, lack of willpower, lack of character, and doctors were loath to treat alcoholics because it didn't make any sense and they were considered to be hopeless and alcoholics are not famous for paying their bills. So why would you want to treat alcoholics when they A, don't pay their bills, and B, what kind of hope can you give to them? And C, it was considered that it was their fault in the first place. If they weren't so stupid, if they weren't so dumb, if they weren't so weak, if they didn't lack character, if they weren't so lazy, if they cared about their families, they wouldn't be alcoholics. And this was the prevailing thinking for centuries. Thinking back, if you have an alcoholic child or an alcoholic parent or sibling or spouse or friend, we are not bad people trying to get good. We are sick people trying to get well. We are not bad people. We don't want to hurt you. I hurt a lot of people with my eating. I hurt a lot of people with my, with my eating, my money, my, my lying, my other, you know, all the other things that we do as addicts but I have an illness and that doesn't excuse the behavior. I still have to make amends for it. And I still have to not do that today. My bills are paid. I live an honest life. I don't, I'm, I'm very transparent in my life. But the bottom line is we're sick. We're sick. But Dr. Silkworth didn't want to risk his career because he would have been run out of the medical profession because his opinions were unproven. They were unproven. They were theories. I have a theory about addiction. It's my theory based on my observation. I believe that addiction, like food addiction, is a spectrum disorder. I believe that we are affected. 
identically physical allergy, mental twist, but we are not affected equally. Some of us are more low bottom than others. That's my observation in 44 years of being here in these rooms. 44 years is a long time to observe. That's my theory. Can I prove it to you? No. Am I a doctor? No. Can I prove it scientifically? No. But it, I believe it like I believe my name's Harlan. I believe it. And Dr. Silkworth wrote this letter as a letter of introduction for to Bill Wilson to some people that he was trying to get money from fundraising. Him and Hank engaged in a lot of attempts to get money from people to help them with their book project. And thank God most of those efforts failed. Thank God most of those efforts failed. Let's read the letter. And what you can do in your mind is know that when he refers to himself, his name is redacted. And when he refers to Bill, the name is redacted. And let's see how far we get. My voice is not good this morning. I'll, I'll do the best I can. I'm screaming right now. I know you can hear me by the looks on your faces. So my voice is not good at this time of year because the humidity here is extremely low and it wreaks havoc on my vocal cords. But I'll do the best I can. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. That's Dr. Silkworth, obviously. In late 1934, this would be December of 34, after Bill Wilson had been hospitalized on two previous occasions, before this, he will come into contact with the Oxford groups because in November of 34, Ebby will come and visit him and he will change the course of human affairs forever by getting Bill to see that he, Ebby, was sober. And he was sober because he had gone into the Oxford group movement two months previous. Okay. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I have come to regard as hopeless. Now, <clears throat> if you're hopeless, does that mean that you can't work the steps or you shouldn't waste your time? No, what hopeless means in this case to me is you gotta be out of ideas. If you're out of ideas, if you still have ideas about how you're going to eat some sugar or you're going to binge once a week or you're going to, you know, when it's your birthday, you're going to eat cake or you're going to this or you're going to that. We can't help you. Out of ideas means you are ready to surrender. You are ready to recover. Out of ideas can be a very good place that should fill you with hope. What is it about the human ego where we have to examine every wrong answer before we can accept the right answer? And my answer is, I don't know, but there is something in the human ego that will seek out every freaking wrong answer on the planet before we come in here for the right answer. 
Okay, in the course of his third treatment, we're going to learn in Bill's story, he's going to be in the hospital three times. And the third time, he will never go back except to work with other guys. He acquired certain ideas, Oxford Group, concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics. In other words, he got sponsoring right away. Not like a lot of what you see in AA, or, or not AA, but OA today. I hear people all the time call them, I don't want to sponsor. Hey, I don't want to either. But if you want to keep it, you got to give it away. If you don't sponsor, you're not going to recover. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. Remember that I told you that this is a letter of introduction. So he's writing this to introduce Bill Wilson to potential donors to the book project. I hope it makes more sense now that I've explained that. They, when the doctor's opinion was being formulated, they put it in there. But Dr. Silkworth would only let Bill use him for this if he redacted the name because he didn't want to be run out of the medical profession. But in 1945, the psychiatrist Harry Tebow, who was Bill's psychiatrist, wrote a paper that he believed that alcoholism was a disease, was an illness. And in 1949, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association accepted alcoholism as an illness. And in 1949, Silkworth told Bill Wilson that when you do the next printing in 1950, you can put my name in there. And he did, Bill. And in 1951, Dr. Silkworth died and left us. But without him, we got nothing. We got nothing. I I'm at the bottom of XXV. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. If those methods had succeeded, we wouldn't know you. You wouldn't be here. If Weight Watchers gave me the result I wanted, I wouldn't know you. If Tops gave me the results I wanted, I wouldn't know you. And if you know, there's other ones that I'm not going to venture opinions on, but there are many of you that have had the urine of pregnant women shot up your butt. It didn't work or you wouldn't be here. There are some of you that have had your jaws wired together. If that worked, you wouldn't be here. There are some of you that have been cut by surgeons. If that worked, you wouldn't be here. I'm not giving you an opinion on any of this. It's just, if it worked, you wouldn't be here. You don't have to be a detective to figure that out. Whom other methods had failed completely. These facts, I'm at the bottom of XXV. 
These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. But in the first 10 printings of this book, it said very truly yours, blank, blank, MD. We owe a lot to Dr. Silkworth. We're going to just scratch the surface this morning of what we owe him. Without him, there is no program. He was the little doctor who loved drunks. He stood on his feet in the hallway of hotel, of not hotels, of hospitals, in the rooms of hospitals at Towns Hospital and getting puked on and getting, getting pissed on and getting crapped on by these drunks and putting up with them because he loved to treat God's children. He loved to treat these guys. He was the little doctor who loved drunks. He was a little guy that cast a giant shadow and he will be remembered and talked about, loved, cherished 20,000 generations from now. His work will never ever stop. The sun never sets on what Dr. Silkworth did. He unlocked the whole thing for us. He unlocked it. He made the world a better place. He made the world a place where you could understand the problem of addiction. How many people can say that? Let's continue. Now we're going to go into the part where Bill is writing again. This is not Silkworth writing. This is Bill writing. The physician who at our request, again, please forgive my voice, but I live in a desert. And when the humidity gets very low as it is now, it's, it's, it, my vocal cords don't react well. I'm sorry about that. I'm doing the best I can. I'm drinking water. I'm doing the best I can. But this has been happening to me from the time I was a child. My mother used to say, Harlan Charles, close the voice box. She would say to me when she would hear it coming on, she would say, close the voice box. That's what she would say. I can hear her saying it now. Okay, I'm on XXVI, XXVI. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. We're going to get to that letter next week. We're not going to get to that today. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. What a sentence. Alcoholic torture must believe. We must believe what? Dash. 
that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Stop the presses right there. For thousands of years, thousands of years, this was considered weak will, insanity, crazy, lazy, stupid, doesn't care about his family, doesn't care about her children, doesn't care about her parents, doesn't care about her job or his job, doesn't care about his relatives or his standing in the community. And this is not just those things that the body it was considered the mind you know weak will stupidity and don't care and doesn't love his bill loved lois don't ever you know i know you hear all this other crap about lois and or bill and he had his girlfriends and he had his his this and he had that you know I'm telling you, he loved Lois from the bottom of his heart. And when he would tell her in, you know, I want to quit, he was serious. And he would write in the family Bible, go to Stepping Stones. The next time Vision has a convention, which I'm hoping is next year. I don't have any information on that at all. So don't ask me. I don't know any more than you do. But when you're in New York, um, Go to Stepping Stones. I know it's a bit of a schlep. You can see the family Bible there where he wrote in there, Lo, I love you. This is the year I stopped John Barleycorn. Lo, I love you. I promise 1933, 1927, whatever the heck it is, I'm going to stop drinking. He meant it. But what we're learning here is about that it's not weak will and crazy and insanity and all that. It's not. There's a physical component. And we must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. That when I eat an M&M, one M&M, that something goes cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in my body, that it sets me up with a craving for more of the same. That I can't do with food what I see others around me doing. I see people and they have half a sandwich. They order a half a sandwich and a cup of soup for lunch and they can't finish it. What do you mean you can't finish it? Are you nuts? What the hell? They can't. They're different. Do I want to test power tools on their skulls? Yes. Do I want to test weapons on them? Yes. Do I want to set them on fire? Yes. But seriously, I, once that is inside of me, I'm bonkers. I can't just eat one. There was a product called Jay's Potato Chips in Chicago. I'm born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Proud of that fact. I'm a proud, uh, proud Chicagoan. And they used to have a commercial for a product called Jay's Potato Chips. And they'd say, Jay's Potato Chips, you can't eat just one. And I used to laugh even when I was five, six years old. Give me any potato chips. I don't care what brand of potato chips it is. I can't just eat one. 
I can't eat just one potato chip. What are you, out of your mind? Who the hell can eat one potato chip? I don't care who makes it. I don't care if it's the lousiest potato chip ever made. Give me the whole bag. You know what they used to say? If it doesn't taste quite right, just eat twice as much. You'll be fine. Okay. That the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Very, very important. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life. That's a very heavy statement. You know how many of us have thought to ourselves, you know, if this person would stop doing that or that person would start doing this or I had this or I didn't have that, I wouldn't eat so much. Uh-uh, uh-uh. There's no earthly reason for the disease and there's no earthly remedy for the disease. The disease is imbued into us by nature, by God to bring us closer to him than we ever would have gotten before. I don't thank God necessarily for my youth of what I missed out on, but I thank God for this disease because if I didn't have this disease, I wouldn't have the underlying rhythm and purpose to my life. I wouldn't be as close to God as I've gotten I wouldn't have the wonderment of the fellowship. I wouldn't have the miracles of watching all of you coming in, struggling, and then becoming sponsors yourself. I watch some of you. I watch some of you coming in and I see how you struggle. And I see some of you that don't come back and that's sad. I miss you. When you're not here, I miss you. I remember some of you that come back, but some of you don't make it back. Some of you die. Or I'll see you in the store. I'll see you on the street. You look terrible. But there's a light in the eyes of the people that's, that come back. There's a light in the eyes of the people who become recovered that I wouldn't want to miss. This is the greatest way of life imaginable and I wouldn't have it accessible to me if I didn't have this horrible affliction of the food addiction. Let's continue. That we were in full flight from reality or outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent in some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us as laymen. Our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. What is he talking about? 
He, when he talks about that there's things that we cannot account, why would someone whose life was ripped apart by food be eating more and more and more pizza and more and more and more candy and cookies and cakes? This disease took everything from me. The power to dream, the power to be part of life, I never held a girl's hand till I was 35 years old. I never went on a date. I watched the world pass me by. I'm going to be 70 and I'm still working. This disease took everything from me. And yet, if you give me enough room and I don't work the steps and I don't come here, I'm, I mean here to meetings and things, and I don't have a sponsor, and I don't stay on my food plan. I will practice this disease to the gates of death. That is the gravitational pull of the disease. So the things that we cannot account are, why is he drunk again? Why is she drunk again? With all that has gone down with his children, why is he drunk again? <clears throat> why is she drinking again? Why is he eating? Why is she vomiting? Her esophagus is ripped to shreds. Why is she still practicing bulimia? Why, when she weighs X pounds, is she starving herself? Because we cannot account for these things until we understand that this is a disease. This is a disease. So we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane. Altruism is giving with no expectation of result that comes to us from the Oxford group. We favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. Now there's four times in the doctor's opinion in eight pages where the doctor is going to tell you to put down the food, completely and utterly to put down the food. Here's the first. More often than not, it is imperative. What's imperative mean? Imperative means that it is important above all else that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he then has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So what is Dr. Sil what is Bill Wilson telling you here based on Silkworth's information? You got to put down the food, all of it. Not some of it. If you went to an AA group and you said to those guys, hey, vodka is the fifth ingredient. Can you have a drink of this? No. If you went to an NA meeting, meeting and you said to them, hey, cocaine is the fifth or sixth ingredient. Can you have this? They would say no. But yet you see people in OA doing that all the time. How do you put down the food? You put it down by putting it down. 
How do I put down this pen? See the pen? I put down the pen by putting the pen down. It's no more complicated than that. You need a food plan. You can't get to a nutritionist today. Go to OA.org and download a pamphlet called A New Plan of Eating. There's four or five food plans on there. Man, I wish I could talk. There's four or five food plans on there that are all workable. Don't eat anything that's not on the plan. Don't eat anything that's not on the plan. Don't eat anything that's not on the plan. And before I forget, let me mention, don't eat anything that's not on the plan. It's no more complicated than that. It really is not, okay? So this is the first of the four times. What we're gonna do next week, I'm gonna take a minute and I'm going to I'm going to be gone just for a minute here and I'm going to come right back. I'm going to let Maria do her announcements or anything, but we're going to listen, we're going to talk about the next letter